0: What was the mix of stories that Project Censored said were underreported in 2020 and 2021? What additional changes in the media landscape have worked to frustrate news collection in the modern era? What is the one event in the last year that threatens to change the geopolitical chess match in play between the US, Russia, and China? What major story in 2021 and what news story in the future is changing the map for all of our lives? This week, the first of the 2022 season, the Global Research News Hour marks the occasion by reviewing some of the more pertinent stories of the past year and what we should watch out for going into a new year. In our first half hour, we reconvene our conversation with Project Censored editor Andy Lee Roth about what the Journalist Project saw as the most overlooked big stories of the past year and about some of the major highlights of Censored's annual magazine. In the middle point of the show, the geopolitical analyst and journalist Pepe Escobar weighs in on the biggest geopolitical event altering world events. Finally, independent media journalist James Corbett lays out what he calls the People Reset, setting the stage for popular resistance to the rash of COVID waves pounding down on us on what's possibly coming in 2022. On this week's program, a look back at 2021, the good, the bad, and the censored. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 7th, 2022. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization, produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and Inu. Oji Cree, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. The above-noted artifacts have the effect of rendering the currently available batch toxicity analyses unreliable, in that their graphical and distributional analyses do not support their stated conclusions. More careful analysis, accounting for the important data artifact issues, is required. OCLA researchers have performed detailed data analyses on the VAERS data, which corroborate the need for this cautionary note. OCLA researchers Plan to publish their analysis soon at ocla.ca. Researcher Jessica Rose made essentially the same cautionary note with supporting analyses on December 1st, 2021, here. However, her observations have since been largely overlooked by critical experts, e.g., here. That comes from the article Analysis of Batch Specific Toxicity of COVID 19 Vaccine Products using VAERS data a statement by Ontario Civil Liberties Association by the Ontario Civil Liberties Association posted January 5th originally published at OCLA according to a recent New York Times report by Carol Rosenberg who has been covering the infamous Gitmo for the 20 years since it opened The military is building a new secret courtroom on the premises, which won't be completed until 2023. It's hard to say what is the most disturbing thread in her report, which came out right before the new year and, of course, made no waves. It must be quite difficult to dedicate one's journalistic career to an issue that most Americans have lost all interest in the torture and detention of other human beings without charge appeared to go out with the government spying illegally on Americans. No one seems to care. According to Rosenberg, the military is building a second courtroom to handle more than one case simultaneously as the trial of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the four other men accused of plotting the September 11, 2001 attacks is still going on. That comes from the article, The U.S. is Building Rather Than Tearing Down Gitmo Prison Facilities, by Kelly Balkar-Valajos, posted january 5th, originally published in Responsible Statecraft. Putin is no angel, see his repression of the Chechen, but he is quite right when he says that the West backstabbed Russia when it orally promised not to expand NATO in exchange for Gorbachev's agreeing to Germany's reunification and its inclusion in NATO. Today, NATO has pushed into Moscow's former backyard. In NATO's vanguard are Russia-hating Poland, the three Baltic states, and Hungary, all of whom have ample reason to fear and mistrust Russia. All would be happy to see the U.S. go to war with Russia. But the U.S. has no strategic objectives and no logical war aims in southern Russia, Ukraine. That comes from the article Dangerous Crossroads, Nuclear War Over Ukraine, by Eric Margolis, posted January 5th, originally published in the UNS Review. Canada's CF-18 jets have dropped 696 bombs on Libya as part of the NATO attack which included 10,000 bombing sorties that killed and wounded more than 5,600 civilians up until July 2011 alone, and destroyed vital civilian infrastructure, particularly water facilities, leaving 4 million Libyans out of a population of 6 million without potable water. NATO bombing demolished hospitals, universities, homes, and the entire town of Sirte, population 100,000. These are clearly war crimes and crimes against humanity that Canada and NATO are responsible for. The NATO attack lasted seven months until October 2011, eradicating Libya's central government, society, and state, and handing the country over to gangs of terrorists, criminals, Islamic fundamentalists, and American operatives who started fighting with each other, pushing Libya into an abyss of violent anarchy that continues today, a decade later. Libya went from being a prosperous country with Africa's highest standard of living, 54th on the UN's Human Development Index in 2010, which totaled 174 countries, and a welfare state, to becoming one of the poorest and most devastated nations in the world today, where slavery abounds and traffickers prey on millions of people trying to escape to Europe in boats that often sink. That comes from the article, Canada's attack on Libya helped spread terrorism internationally, by Assad Izmi, posted January 5th. Welch for the Global Research News Hour. We've come to the end of 2021. Uh, a year ago, we had expectations of COVID 19 coming to an end, the end of the Trump era, and uncertain thoughts about fighting climate change. But we also ventured through a, a new and different era of news. Uh, this year's Censored magazine is out and list, a listing uh, not only their top underreported. Uh, news stories of 2020-21, but also highlighting media democracy in action, uh, junk food news, uh, among other features. Uh, Its title is State of the Free Press 2022. And joining me yet again for this fun tour is Andy Lee Roth. He's an editor with uh, Project Censored and and co-editor of A Dozen Issues of the uh, annual yearbook. And he joins me now for a a walk down memory hole lane. Uh, (laughs) Great to have you with us, Andy.
1: Thanks, Michael. It's always a pleasure to join you on the Global Research News Hour.
0: Yeah. So, uh, I mean, just to give me a a general overview of of, of this year's, uh, you know, this year's yearbook beyond the the, the stuff that I already mentioned.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, we have all our usual features, as you've noted, uh, our review of the top 25 most important but underreported stories. Um, We have um, our deja vu news chapter uh, takes a look back at some previous years, top censored stories to see what's become of them since then. Um, We have our annual feature on junk junk food news, the kind of frivolous uh, uh, potato chip type news that's fed to us in place of a real substantive uh, healthy news diet. Um, we have a great chapter on news abuse, which is kind of the flip side of, if, of, of junk food news. If junk food news is about the kind of frivolous stories that take up um, space in the paper and time on the airwaves, uh, news abuse uh, is a category we use to analyze stories that are serious news stories, but have been reported by the corporate media in a way that distort Um, The significance of the story, muddle the significance of the story. And then, as you mentioned, I'm so happy and proud. Uh, I think we have one of our best media democracy in action uh, chapters ever. Um, We've got um, John K. Wilson from Academe Blog talking about uh, uh, censorship on college and university campuses We have Michael Gordon, who directs the Prop Watch Project, which is a fantastic online resource for anyone interested in critical media literacy and propaganda. We have Sonali Kohatkar, uh, who uh, people may know as the the founder and host of Rising Up with Sonali, which is a flagship independent uh, uh, news show on the Pacifica network here in the United States. The Index on Censorship is uh, uh, telling about how she uh, works with future journalism uh, professionals uh, in their university training, getting them to think about um, how uh, the work of journalism is a lot like de- detective work. Um, and we have DJ Johnson and Allison Trope at the Critical Media Project uh, at the University of Southern California, um, telling uh, some in the Media Democracy and Action chapter about uh, educational resources that the CMP provides. So uh, for every bit of maybe negative or disconcerting news that uh, State of the Free Press 2022 spotlights, um, it's more than counterbalanced by the uh, contributions to this final media democracy and action chapter that I've just quickly glossed here. There's a lot of great material there for anyone who uh, wants to engage or just needs a shot of hope that we aren't, uh, you know, Uh, on the fast track to disaster here. There's a lot of really good stuff going on. And I'll talk some about that as we get into some of the stories too.
0: Okay, sure. Sounds like you had a lot of uh, different people like Sonali. uh,
1: Kohatkar, yeah.
0: Yeah, she's been around quite a while. Um, Yeah, well, let's uh, get on with some of these stories. Um, uh, Number 22, a data miner uh, introduces racial bias, stereotypes and policing of social media. Okay, yeah that doesn't necessarily surprise me, but I mean, in terms of being an under-related story, I mean, could you just expand a bit?
1: Yes, yes. So this is a report originally uh, uh, published by The Intercept um, in October of 2020, reported by Sam Biddle. Data Miner is a New York-based company that monitors uh, Twitter uh, and other social media for uh, so-called suspicious behavior. And a program, a controversial program called First Alert that is used by law enforcement professionals um, to keep informed about breaking events, enabling fast time response, um, using the language of Data Miner's own um, um, publicity on the first alert program there. Um, but in reality, uh, what The Intercept uncovered is that uh, law enforcement agencies have effectively been using Data Miner's Twitter uh, surveillance to target communities of color. So this is another form of kind of uh, uh, data-driven, um, technology-driven data driven technology driven uh, 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 uh police, uh, law enforcement racism, right? Um, targeting communities of color. The, the snag on this is that data DataMiner uh, is employing people who, who probably are unqualified to make sense of what they're tracking on Twitter. Um, so that uh, in the report, uh, one of the sources who talked to The Intercept summarized it neatly by saying, data miner and law enforcement were perpetuating each other's biases. Mm. Now, there has been a fair amount of news coverage about data miner in the US press, a lot of favorable news coverage, in fact, highlighting the company's business partnerships, its financial successes. Um, you know, We can talk about how CNBC was covering the CEO's plans for a stock market launch to go public in 2023. Uh, when we reviewed this story, Um, What we found was that though there was considerable positive coverage about data miner, there was absolutely no uh, critical coverage looking at data miners first alert program and how it is basically perpetuating um, uh, racial bias in policing in the United States so it is deservedly one of our top 25 stories this year.
0: For sure. Uh, Another story uh, you have is a new wave of independent news sources demonetized by Google-owned YouTube. That's number 17. Yeah, uh, And maybe talk a little bit about that.
1: This is probably a story that in some ways is familiar to uh, any, anyone who follows the work of global research and the Global Research News Hour. but these things bear documenting anyway, and there's an angle to this that is important. So this is reporting from Consortium News, Caitlin Johnstone, a February uh, 2021 report of, uh, of a t- um, this one involving uh, the demonetizing of the Progressive Soapbox, the Convo Couch, Frank Analysis, Hannah Reloaded all of which were demonetized by YouTube did content that violated community standard guidelines. Um, the, the, the dynamic with this on YouTube and project censored has been subject to this as well. I would add, uh, is that there's an, for you, when you, when your channel is subject to demonetization or, uh, or, or it, it gets completely banned, um, there's an unclear appeal process. Um, and, And uh, YouTube is basically unaccountable. Um, So Caitlin Johnstone, the the author of of this report from Consortium News, says, uh, put it this way. I'm quoting her directly here. The general population is herded onto huge monopolistic social media platforms, offering democratization of information where your voice can be heard. And then those platforms proceed to censor an increasing amount of political speech. Right. Right. So savvy folks might be saying, wait a minute, I've heard about YouTube demonetizing people, uh, including news and political uh, channels. Um, But most of the corporate news coverage that we found as we researched this story uh, for this year's book was that um, the corporate coverage has focused on the demonetization of right-wing channels um, that have been... uh, uh, demonetized or had accounts suspended for disseminating hate speech or for suppressing specific videos as indecent or age inappropriate. Um, what, what hasn't been covered in the corporate media in the United States is how Google's the Google-owned platform is increasingly muzzling left-wing and progressive political content, right? That has gone largely unremarked in the establishment press.
0: Wow um a number number 11 seed sovereignty movements challenge corporate monopolies uh, 15,000 of 5g satellites pose risk of future space wars that sounds like one of your uh uh you know good news stories that's
1: thrown yeah. in the seed sovereignty movement is definitely a good news story. And so this is it's important that, but right, you know, a, another type of story that is frequently overlooked or omitted or treated in a partial, which is to say, bias or incomplete way by the corporate media are these these, in effect, solution stories, right? Good news, not in the sense of, oh, the cat got stuck in the tree and the neighbor came to help get the cat down. That's great for the cat, but not really important news. This is a story about a a kind of the global movement to push back against kind of seed monopolies, big ag, and to support what Vandana Shiva is the kind of the founder of the the notion of seed sovereignty, which she used to talk about how uh, farmers, everyday people, have the right to breed and exchange seeds that haven't been patented, that haven't been genetically modified, Um, that haven't been, aren't controlled by big ag, right? So the seed sovereignty movement is challenging um, these big corporate monopolies. This is another case where there has been corporate coverage of some aspects of this story, but not the ones that our report that is the centerpiece of this year's uh, number 11 story have covered. So most of the establishment news outlet on this focuses on how these big companies like Bayer and Corteva Uh, have genetically modified seeds that are patented that require farmers to buy them and restrict seed saving, restrict the ability of farmers to seed save from one year to the next. The story that Deutsche Well reported, that is our top, the reason this is one of our top stories this year, is about a different um, angle. um, How Uh, These big companies are benefiting from intellectual property statutes that are known as plant variety protections um, uh, that restrict other uh, non GMO plant varieties uh, in ways that benefit big ag to the detriment of ordinary everyday farmers And I I won't try to go into all the detail on how this works here. I'll point people who are interested to the Project Censored website where all these top 25 stories and indeed all 45 years of our annual story lists are available for free at projectcensored.org. But just to kind of summarize this story, one of the upshots of this is that um, these intellectual property uh, uh, statutes are not only harming individual family farmers, uh, right, by preventing kind of ordinary seed sharing techniques, the handing down of of seeds from one generation to the next, they're also reducing the genetic diversity of our seed crops. And in a time of climate crisis, uh, we know that uh, any kind of um, the more uniform or or uh, the more uniform any genetic pool is, the more vulnerable it is to the hazards posed by the climate crisis. So um, the, 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 this just underscores the importance of a seed sovereignty movement that is addressing not only kind of GMO patented uh, uh, seed restrictions, but also these intellectual property plant variety protection laws that are increasingly global in character.
0: Okay. Uh, I notice you have a, a lot of other great stories. Police use dogs as instruments of violence targeting people of color. <sighs> Pfizer at number eight is Pfizer bullies South American vote governments over COVID-19 vaccine. Um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I don't know how much time we have, but i mean these these are all good topics that uh, you should uh, you know speak up i mean, could you say anything about like any new news groups that are are you know very well represented in the in the to, in the top twenty mm-hmm. five
1: yeah i let me say quickly that how this a little bit about how this top twenty five list comes to be every year um which of course we would have no Um, news that didn't make the news to report if there weren't, of course, intrepid investigative journalists and fantastic independent news outlets uh, on the beat. And so this year's story list draws from um, no fewer than 29 uh, distinct independent news outlets, uh, everything from Amazon Watch to who, what, uh, why, uh, and in between. Um, I would give a shout out to uh, uh, a journalist whose work I'm always, uh, fights for in these times who has, uh, at this point probably has at least a half a dozen top 25 stories, if not more to, to, uh, her, uh, name over the years. And I believe Sarah has a couple of the stories in this year's book. Um, uh, one of which is our number four story about how climate debtor nations have colonized the atmosphere. Um, So I think Sarah Lazare is doing great work. I would also give a shout out on labor issues to Mike Elk at the Payday Report, a little, you know, a truly a tiny uh, independent news outlet that has been tracking wildcat strikes since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, and There have been more than 1,500 of these across the nation in the United States, something people would know nothing about if they uh, only followed the establishment press. But Mike Elk has been connecting the dots to show that this is a wave of wildcat strikes that is, um, historically, we'd have to go back to the late 1960s, early 1970s to see such a wave of labor unrest in the United States.
0: Mm. Yeah, we only got (laughs) few minutes left, but uh, you know, time flies. But I mean, I wonder if you could talk about, uh, uh, well, chapter three, it, it really speaks to me that the junk food news segment uh, by Jen Lyons and Sierra Collins uh, and Mickey, uh, our return to a new normalcy, yes. shrinking attention spans, pervasive inanities and the persistence of human, human- attainment. What is there, the thesis? That of chapter that goes chapter. after
1: the idea that uh, much of what passes as uh, news that Project Censored analyzes as uh, junk food news, the theme this year is that notion of humility, that we're somehow gratified when we watch other people engaged, other ordinary people, not even celebrities or, or political leaders uh, for that matter, engaged in behavior that in some ways shows them to be foolish or it makes makes them appear incompetent. Um, And this has been a staple of junk food news for some time. And this year, uh, Jen Lyons and her team uh, really put a spotlight on that as a specific subtype of junk food news. So uh, all this falls under the kind of uh, rubric of, look over here, look over here, pay attention to this while the real action is going on elsewhere. And so for every junk food news story that is, uh, dissected in gory detail in the junk food news chapter. Um, the analysis also includes a topically related story that was receiving no corporate news coverage at the time. So that's a way that we make the junk food news, uh, kind of analytical is by saying at the same time that the corporate media was focused on this frivolous story, here was another story that deserved far more attention, that was simply off the radar as far as the establishment press went.
0: Okay, uh, we only got maybe a, a minute left. Uh, I'll, I'll. I think I'll let you uh, speak to the issue of, of the very introduction that you, you wrote about. Uh, you talked about the new normal uh, in in news production. You know, basically what's shifted from uh, the previous years.
1: Yeah, I mean, so there's a there's an immediate like we're into another year of of journalism, independent journalism under uh, the constraints and the 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 devastating impacts of COVID-19. But in the introduction of the book, Mickey Huff, the project's uh, director, and I are also looking at kind of what's changed in the media landscape since Project Censored was founded in 1976. So we're addressing things like how media deregulation has affected the content of news, um, how there are increasingly chilling threats and physical threats to journalists doing their work in the United States, threats coming from everything from the Department of Justice to law enforcement officers. And then we're also talking a little bit about censorship by proxy, how uh, these new big media companies um, are, although they aren't engaged in journalism and they deny that they're even uh, functioning as uh, communications platforms in some ways, are nonetheless acting as gatekeepers for what we are likely to know about and learn about when it comes to news. And so, you know, I think this is a core area of concern for anyone in- interested in independence of the press and the integrity of news. That the new gatekeepers—Google, Facebook, Twitter, etc.—are not themselves journalistic organizations. They aren't. They aren't committed to journalistic ethics, um, and yet they uh, increasingly uh, control what you or I see in our news feeds as, as the news of the day. And uh, an awareness of that is the first step towards beginning to counter, to counter it and fight back against it.
0: Andy Lee Roth, I want to thank you for having you back. It's been a treat. And uh, I uh, say, well, look forward to seeing much more of your uh, media project as they, uh, as it unfolds. You're based in Washington right now. So, but uh, anyway, thanks again.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to join you on Global Research News Hour.
0: And we've been speaking to uh, one of the editors, uh, Andy Lee Roth of Project Censored. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. This is Michael Welch for the Global Research News Hour. 2021 has come to a close. A lot of people think. This coming year, we'll see things escalate. It's the second year of the raging 20s, which has so far seen SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus, as the star performer on the world stage. We're going to examine what's made this a notable year. Pepe Escobar is an independent geopolitical analyst, writer, and journalist. He's also the author of the recent book, Raging 20s, great power politics meets techno-feudalism. He joins us now to note some of what he found most memorable and notable about the past year and how things look going into 2022. It's a real treat having you on, Pepe. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks, Uh, thanks, Michael. Thanks everybody. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. It's uh, 6.10 p.m. in Paris and the world is burning as usual. (laughs) Well, yes. Taking
0: a look at uh, all the stories to come out in 2021, there was uh, from the January 6th riot on Capitol Hill to the abandonment of Afghanistan in August to a potential spat between NATO and Russia uh, toward the end of the year. What stood out for you as most significant in terms of having an impact and even a lasting effect on the way in which things work politically and geopolitically?
2: Well, if we had to pick one geopolitical development, it would have to be the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, because this is a mega game changer all across Eurasia and beyond. Uh, in terms of uh, the process of Eurasian integration, first and foremost, which is led by China, Russia, and also Iran at different levels, uh, there was a missing link in the chessboard, in the Eurasian chessboard, which was Afghanistan, which also happens to be a cross-war, uh, crossroads of empires, a crossroads of uh, a geo- geopolitical tectonic plates and an old crossroads from the ancient Silk Roads, which was also missing a missing link uh, in the new Silk Roads promoted by China and interpolating with uh, the Greater Eurasia Partnership, which is driven by Russia. So the, the, with, well, I, uh, we all know by now the conditions and uh, the absolutely sorry spectacle of uh, the American withdrawal in Afghanistan. Uh, I follow that closely, uh, not only writing, but then putting up uh, an e-book about the forever wars, which included uh, the last few months of, um, of what happened in Afghanistan, especially July and August. And of course, my memories of Afghanistan during the Taliban era, when I, when I was there, when I visited, uh, at the end of the Taliban era, when I was there before 9-11 and after 9-11, when I spent a great deal of the second half of 2001 in Pakistan, the tribal areas and then in Afghanistan. So for me, it was time travel as well. And uh, as a way of putting together the whole uh, drama, the, the, the bigger drama of the War on Terror since uh, when uh, the War on Terror didn't even exist <laughs> at least nominally uh, in the late 90s and the early 2000s and, and even during 2001 and uh, how it was absolutely predictable that the American Empire sooner or later w- would leave or would be expelled from Afghanistan which is what happened in the end it was a mix of being expelled by force of circumstances and living in, <laughs> I would say, ignominiously, to say the least. So this was the most important geopolitical development because the situation in, um, in the whole of Eurasia changed completely. Because now we have a process of Eurasian integration where you have Russia and China also, uh, let's say, advising the Taliban on how to conduct themselves internally and externally. The Central Asian states are also part of the whole thing. We had very serious meeting at at the foreign minister level of Russia, China, the Central Asian states, uh, Pakistan, Iran as well. And obviously everyone wants Taliban Afghanistan to succeed, which is gonna be a very, very complex proposition because of the internal dynamics of Afghanistan, of the internal dynamics of Pashtun tribes and clans, their own fight for power inside Afghanistan, and how they're going to have to relate with their new partners across Eurasia, uh, members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the big powers, especially China and Russia, uh, the Chinese who want to invest in Afghanistan and make Afghanistan part of the new Silk Roads, the relationship with uh, with Pakistan, which is extremely fractious, um, the fact that they will never be allowed by any of the players in Eurasia to again host uh, Salafi jihadis of the Al Qaeda kind and others uh, eventually ISIS, etc. So th- this is so complex that the ramifications will be felt for not only years but decades but the most important thing is that the whole Eurasian chessboard changed because of what happened in afghanistan and of course in terms of how it was interpreted interpreted all across the global south was seen as the ultimate humiliation of the declining empire and this is how it was, saw, was seen in Southeast Asia, in South Asia, in West Asia, in Central Asia, in Africa, in the Middle East, in Latin America. Uh, so, you know, this, we could keep talking about this for days or weeks, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um,
0: I, I'm wondering then with, like, with that uh, change in the, in the political chessboard and, and such, uh, is, is there anything that you're seeing hmm. As, as a blip on, on the radar, screen, a story set to, to redefine the world, whether it be a, a readjustment of, of the ways that, in which we relate or a point of no return having been crossed. What, what can you say with some certainty as to what's going to bedevil us as we go into 2022?
2: Well, uh, well we cannot have certainty about anything, especially after the the beginning of the COVID era, which will last (laughs) God only knows how long, you know, so uh, uh, that was part of the title of of the book that I launched a year ago exactly in uh, January 2021, Raging 20s, Raging 20s because these are not the roaring 20s of the 1920s, these are the raging 20s because Rage is the sign of the era that we are living, and we are seeing it right now with a new color revolution uh, springing up in Kazakhstan. I spent my whole day today just uh, digging deeper into it. Uh, Rage because of of the uncontained rage uh, by the U.S. and NATO vis-a-vis not only Russia, but also China, and even against Iran, which persists. So... In terms of strategic imbecility, there's nothing in modern history comparable to, to the American War mongers or the War Inc party in the US trying to fight um, a war on three different fronts against three very, very powerful adversaries, Russia, China, and I- Iran, which happened to be, once again, the major poles of a process of Eurasia integration, new Silk Roads, connectivity, and having uh, what, what Putin said, you know, since 2007, he has been saying that uh, 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 a free trade and uh, connectivity area from uh, uh, Lisbon to Vladivostok, the Chinese in the end, they started to do that uh, since 2013 with the new Silk Roads. And the Russians are doing their way with the Greater Eurasia Partnership, the Eurasia Economic Union as well. It's to try to unify uh, sustainable development in different areas of Eurasia and connect it to Europe. The problem is the European Union, as we know very well, and now that I'm back in Europe, I'm following the European Union and NATO much closer than when I was in Asia until two or three months ago. Uh, it's, it, it's absolutely impossible. Uh, 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 Europe is still uh, an American-occupied territory. And this not only applies to places where the Americans have military bases, like Rammstein in, uh, in Germany or Sigonella in Sicily. This is something that uh, uh, when I was in Sicily the last time, I was, uh, everybody was telling me all the time, uh, do you know how the Americans call uh, Italy? Or Sicily especially, but also Italy. I'm got. American government occupied territory. Mm-hmm. So uh, Europe is still got almost all of it, and, and with NATO is completely got and going all the way to the Russian borders, which is something that they will discuss in Geneva. Uh, nobody with, uh, in his right mind is expecting any breakthrough from uh, uh, the security discussion between Russia and the United States, because the Americans, for... Uh, the way that Washington works, especially, they will never make any concessions to Russia, period. And NATO, which is absolutely controlled by Washington with a bunch of idiots in Brussels uh, and other uh, regional commanders, same thing. They are uh, yapping chihuahuas. Whatever Washington says, they will, they'll keep following. So uh, the problem is, because there will, will not be any serious accommodation from the parts of the US and NATO vis-a-vis the Russian demands, we will be slowly marching towards an inevitable conflagration sooner or later, or maybe even sooner than we think, because the Russians have already made it very, very clear. And this is, this is the big story of the end of 2021, now uh, overspilling to 2020, 2022, as important as Afghanistan, but on a, a much more serious dimension, in fact. Yeah. If you try anything... Funny or dodgy, against our borders, against Russian populations living in uh, uh, countries that are outside of the Russian Federation, or even, especially uh, against uh, the uh, popular republics in in Donbas. Our response is going to be not only uh, local, but it's going to go to the centers of power that. Uh, ordered anything that you be throwing against us. So this is a recipe for what? The last war, as Putin already said, nuclear war. And obviously, those uh, uh, imbeciles, and I, and I, I cannot come com up with a better definition for that rule, so-called foreign policy in Washington, they, they will always, always refuse to acknowledge that the world that we're living now, the Eurasian century, the 21st century is a multipolar world. The most important centers of power are Beijing and Moscow. We're we're gonna have the most important economic uh, and trade power in the world, which already is in many aspects, China, China, and the most important military power in the world, at least three or perhaps four generations ahead of the Americans, Russia, involved in a strategic partnership, and displaying their power and their connections all across Eurasia, and both interested in having very close relations with the European Union, assuming there are some uh, there are any brains left in the European Union. So, yeah. so this is the big story that is going on uh, since last year, overspilling to this year. Uh, everything that is happening now is directly linked to this story. The security. Uh, Uh, discussions in Geneva, uh, the meeting of the Russian NATO Council, the current uh, uh, crypto-color revolution going on in Afghanistan, um, in Kazakhstan, I'm sorry. So, you know, the possibility of uh, the Americans and uh, the British MI6 will always be trying to find ways to destabilize Russia, China, or both in their areas of influ- in their sphere of influence, which is Eurasia, so we are. Uh, it, it has already started. The new paradigm already started. It started with a bang, with this Russian intimation to let's sit down and talk seriously, which is something that they they couldn't have done it before because they didn't have the military power to back it up. Now they do. Ha- they have it in spades. So it's like, okay, you don't want okay, to sit down and talk. So, okay, if you do anything stupid next time, you're gonna talk to Mr. King Zhao and to Mr. Zircon and to Mr. Iskander. So, so this is where we are at, at, at the moment. It's, it's an absolutely frightening prospect considering that we have rational actors in Beijing and in Moscow talking to absolutely irrational actors in Washington and in Brussels. So Mm -hmm. this is where I went
0: going. You just heard from independent geopolitical analyst, writer, and journalist Pepe Escobar on the big news story from his perspective of 2021 and going into 2022. He joined us from Paris. In our last segment, we will provide a different perspective from my colleague and friend, James Corbett. Please stay tuned. take stock of the incredible list of events that rolled out over the course of the last year, we should highlight the efforts of a fellow member of independent media to get his appraisal. James Corbett is based in Japan. He is the editor, webmaster, and writer, producer, host of The Corbett Report, an outlet started in 2007 and dedicated to an independent critical analysis of politics, society, history, and economics. James himself is an award-winning independent journalist and has given talks and lectures related to his alternative coverage in places around the world. He joins us now to talk about his appraisal of what constitutes the main story, or stories, of the past year. Thanks for appearing on the show, James. It's good to host you again.
3: Well, thank you for having me on. Happy New Year.
0: Well, let's get to it. From your location in Japan, what do you think was the lead story of 2021?
3: If people want uh, a sort of more detailed answer on this, they can go to two places. I did a, a New World Next Year video at the end of last year with my co-host, James Emblado of MediaMonarchy.com, where I discussed the year in, uh, in review. And also I wrote an editorial called 2021 Year of the Apocalypse. But to summarize, uh, I think what uh, my my main takeaway from 2021 is, yes, a lot of Horrible things happen from a civil rights perspective or a, a many other health perspective and many other ways that you want to look at it. Um, but I want to focus on the counteraction of that, that growing uh, biomedical tyranny that we're starting to see, the erection of the biosecurity state, the, the counteraction of that, the, the great uprising or whatever you want to call it, of people around the world becoming conscious of the fact that we are not living in the type of reality that they evidently thought we were living in just a couple of years ago and becoming activated on that front. So of course we have seen all sorts of resistance movements and marches and protests and other things popping up in place after place around the world in uh, in protest of the various mandates that are coming into view. And unfortunately they have not solved everything and derailed the biomedical agenda and all of the things that we're seeing. But I think it is, at the very least, it is the, the, the necessary start to an actual movement that will derail this uh, biosecurity state. So I, I frame it that way in terms of 2021 was the year of the apocalypse, but I mean that in the literal sense of apocalypse, as in revelation, the great unveiling, people are starting to see what is really happening? What is taking place? And they are starting to choose their what side of the line they're on, whether they are in, in, uh, on board with this uh, increasing biomedical authoritarianism or whether they are opposed to it. And I think that is at least the, the necessary predicate for an actual resistance movement that hopefully will arise in 2022.
0: You see 2021 as the year people all over the world are pushing back against these measures. You mentioned that people are quitting their jobs rather than proceed with vaccinations and vaccine passports and upcoming The the Great Reset. Uh, The mainstream media and much of the alternative media are saying these are misinformed people, saying that racists are behind it, misogynists are behind it, so they get portrayed in awful ways. And these depictions are definitely affecting people. Uh, I have even heard progressive people talking about mandatory vaccinations being necessary. Will these sorts of messages in place, uh, Will the, with these sorts of messages in place, are we looking... At a deep divide, a segregation within the population, and if so, what? How would that affect the resistance movement? A,
3: a very insightful um, comment, I think, because certainly segregation may be one of the words for the year of 2021 in terms of the uh, obviously vaccinated versus unvaccinated segregation, um, but also pitting parts of the population against each other. And as you say. There are people who are choosing to go along with what is happening right now in the name of public health, because they do not see a deeper agenda at play. So that is happening. On the other side, um, I think in the past, certainly in the past few months, we've started to see even some of those progressives who were lining up on the side of the uh, the biomedical tyranny that's coming into view, starting to change their tune. And Paul Kingsnorth and others have started to say, well, actually, I was on board with this, but now I'm not. I, I, I see the problems of this. So I think there is a change that's happening on that front. Um, but I think ultimately, this is Uh, Essentially, this is what we make it. And this is why in 2021, I made the conscious decision to to direct my efforts towards focusing more on solutions, things that we can actually do about what is happening rather than simply focusing on the bad things that are happening. And I think that is important because that does influence the type of resistance movement that will arise. As you say, it's not just protests and marches, which are, there is a place for that. And that does have a use. But that that cannot be the answer to what is going on right now. And the specific story that I highlighted as my story of the year back in that New World Next Year conversation uh, a few weeks ago was the picnic protest movement that uh, has taken place not just in Europe, but also in even my hometown of Calgary and other places where we're starting to see these types of health pass mandates. You must present your papers to gain access to this restaurant or this bar. Well, there are people who are saying, okay. I'm going to have my little picnic out on the street and hey anyone can come join me and we'll have a party out here. We don't need their restaurants or their bars, their their establishments where they're trying to keep us out of. We can create our own and that is the spirit of the resistance movement that I would at the very least aspirationally like to see taking place in the world because I think that Form of resistance, not simply demanding for uh, scraps from the, the master's table, but we're creating our own table and having our own picnic. Why not? I think that is the spirit of the resistance movement that could actually change the way things are heading.
0: Well, certainly, if it's not getting covered in the mainstream media, at least that I have seen, that could be a way in which this divide is being crossed. But uh, looking ahead into 2022, what would you say is the event or news story that will hugely impact our living in this COVID age?
3: There are obviously a lot of wild cards at play, and one of them very well could be the effects of the what we are being told is a vaccine that has been rolling out across the past year. We do not know. We do not know the health effects of that yet. And we may start seeing that in the coming months and year. So that may be a, a major event. It may not be, it may be something along other lines. Um, In the biomedical framework, the biosecurity framework that I've been talking about the last couple of years, I think the next major move that will take place and they've already started talking about is a global pandemic treaty that the who is already starting negotiations about and I think that is where we will start to see the teeth of the biosecurity state coming into view I don't think it like the Homeland Security State was predicated on nation state defenses and the Department of Homeland Security in the US, and their counterpart institutions in each individual nation state. I think the biosecurity state will be predicated on some sort of global pandemic treaty. We can't have this chaos of people closing borders and having all these different rules. We have to harmonize all these rules and regulations and have some sort of central body for deciding when to close down a country's borders and that sort of thing. And I think that probably won't happen this year, but the the, the negotiations will begin on that this year. The real wild card in my um, estimation and something that I'm gonna be writing about in my newsletter, Uh, in the very near future is the geopolitical wildcard because I think um, that has been largely swept aside and there hasn't been as much attention on that in the past couple of years, but there have been major moves with regards to China and Russia and the US and this new dual front cold war or whatever it's developing into that as I constantly stress could become a hot war, Um, just an Archduke Franz Ferdinand type event away from the implementation of this Vast military architecture that's been installed for this this new Cold War. Um, so that's a major wild card that I think we'll probably see some movement on that in this coming year, and certainly in the coming years. I, I do think that will eventually eclipse. I, I imagine there will be a time in the coming few years where we'll look back on, Oh yeah. Remember COVID-19. That was a thing. Oh yeah. Oh. And then world war three started something along those lines. So I'm afraid that isn't happy news for the new year, but I do, I do think we uh, neglect the geopolitical peril that we're in right now at our own risk.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, it just seems as if, uh, I mean, are you talking specifically about, you know, the ways in which the United States and the NATO are, are kind of, cornering or like surrounding Russia and, and China. And, and right now they're, they're debating uh, or they're, they're ordering Russia to, you know, stop their mobilization uh, in you, you know, before they go into Ukraine and, and Russia saying, no, is that essentially what you're talking about? Or are there other issues as well? That,
3: uh, it That is the two-dimensional plane of what I'm talking about. The two-dimensional chess game between the NATO powers and the U- uh, Russia-China Iran, Axis, whatever you want to call that, Um, that is the two-dimensional chess game that's taking place. But I always try to talk about the three-dimensional chess game, in which I think there are elements of the power structure in both of those sides of this Cold War that are helping to manipulate these things along towards the achievement of some sort of global governance architecture. And that will or will not look exactly like a singular global government. It may look like some sort of 1984 scenario with the warring powers perpetually at war with each other. But at any rate, I think that is um, the, the type of design that we're heading into. And I have a lot more to say about that. And in fact, I am working on a long-term documentary project that will probably be the most important thing I'll ever do that I, I hope will actually get out there before some sort of World War III scenario actually develops so that I can actually warn people about what's coming
0: Yeah, and I guess I should also mention that uh, when you talked about solutions, I mean, that's a a major feature of your site these days, you know, finding a positive solution for for all of these uh, different levels that that, that we're uh, encountering. Um, Yeah, I don't know if that's something like... uh, I don't know, is that that a a new challenge? Is it something that that you you have a lot of gusto for? Or is it something that's maybe uh, a
1: little bit more difficult than you originally thought to to put together?
3: Uh, If people type solutions into my search bar, they'll see that I've been concentrating on that for basically the entirety of the website. But I made a specific decision to focus on that in a weekly series called Solutions Watch over the past year, specifically to direct My attention and the attention hopefully, uh, hopefully I can move some of the needle of the independent media away from simply following the MSM tale and reporting on what the MSM is reporting on in the way that they're reporting on it and say, hey, look, they're lying about this thing. That's great. But that's sort of the baseline understanding that we need in order to shift our perception towards what do we do? What do we actually do to affect change in the world? Because that is ultimately what this is all about. I, I you know it's great to know about what is being done to us. It is much more important to know what we can actually do for ourselves. So that is my focus. and uh, I, I think it's exactly as challenging as I, expected it would be because i don't i i always stress i do not think there's the silver bullet i don't think this is going to change the world overnight but i do think we can make improvements in our lives if we start taking some of our own power back into our own hands and there are many 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 ways to do that there are many people who are working on it unfortunately those voices often tend to get excluded when people are simply reporting on whatever the MSM news story of the week is they will not focus on the people who are out there actively working to build a better world for us
0: it seems to me that as someone who has to look at a lot of stories you just don't want to cover you seem to be very optimistic in that light i appreciate this assessment of the news from your indie media perspective thanks again for agreeing to my to be my guest
3: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I look forward to talking to you again.
0: We've been speaking to Japan-based James Corbett of Corbett Report. You can find all his great recent articles, uh, video documentaries, and more, complete with full sourcing on the website corbettreport.com. One final thought before we close the show. Over the last year, there were spectacular attention to the graves of hundreds and soon thousands of small bodies buried near former residential schools largely confirming the views of the horrible treatment of Indigenous people. I would add, however, that the response should also explore the treatment continuing today in the discrimination against First Nations people underfunded by the child welfare system and systems working internationally through mining and other extraction practices that tend to work against the rhetoric of the Canadian government. That's it for the New Year's special. Next week, we will be back with a look at the potential threat of war between Russia and the U.S. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with Campus Community Radio Station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, oji Ojibwe, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.